Well, in light of Christmas, we are starting a new Advent series that will carry us through the end of the year. And if you're not familiar with the word Advent, it means uh, arrival. Advent means arrival. And in the context of Christianity, Advent describes the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, Advent is the story of God in his fullness moving towards us, moving towards his people as Redeemer, as Savior, and ultimately as Judge. The title of today's message is The Promise of Advent. Uh, Everyone here knows the power of promises. You've experienced what it's like to uh, have a promise kept, uh, how, uh, how trust-building that was, how uh, powerful it is for uh, a family member, a friend, somebody you care about, make a significant promise, a commitment to you, and then follow through, right? How life-giving and powerful that was. And uh, everyone here has probably experienced the pain of broken promises when you're counting on someone to come through where they said it, they looked like they meant it, and when you needed them, they weren't there. You know, maybe it was just a dinner and they flaked and you're like, thanks for letting me know. Or maybe it was something heavier. We all have experienced promises kept and promises broken. Uh, even Hollywood knows the power of these stories. Hollywood creates movies and stories and, and, and in pursuit of tension, climax, and resolve, they often use the power of promise. Now, I'm dating myself. I was t- people told me after the first sermon, don't use this illustration, but it's too late. It's in the manuscript, so here we go. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Jerry Maguire, it was actually in the 90s. And so I know our freshmen were born in the 2000s, so you probably haven't seen it. Uh, but it's about the sports agent, uh, and he represents all of these types of athletes, and he's trying to represent the potential number one NFL draft pick. It's a quarterback, and the tension in that whole movie begins with a broken promise. Jerry Maguire's Tom Cruise, and so ladies, maybe you haven't sent it. It's a younger Tom Cruise, so you might have not sent it to watch it. Um, he's about to seal the deal with this client, and he's talking to the father, and the father says, you know, I don't do contracts but I do shake hands. I will give you my word, and my word is stronger than oak. And the music cues, they shake hands. Tom Cruise thinks he's on top of the world. He's about to sign and book the number one draft pick for the NFL. But just hours later, the father breaks his promise, has his son sign with another agent, and this sends Tom Cruise into an utter tailspin, an utter career tailspin, broken promise. Conversely, one of the most powerful relationships and examples of friendships and promises being kept is in Lord of the Rings. The first movie of the Fellowship of the Ring, it's between the friendship of Frodo and Samwise Gamgee. And at the end of that movie, spoiler alert, Frodo is tired and he's devastated. He's seen so much death. He's seen so much sacrifice, so much pain and sorrow. He says, you know what? I don't want my friends to go through anything anymore. I can't lose any more friends trying to protect me and get me to Mordor. He says, I'm going to go it alone. So he's about to break the fellowship of the ring and just journey by himself. He gets in a boat, goes down a river, and his beloved, loyal friend Samwise is like, no. And he goes after Frodo. And he goes into the river. But here's the problem. Samwise can't swim. He can't swim and Frodo's yelling from the boat, go back, you're stupid, you're foolish, you can't swim, go back. And Sam won't stop and he keeps pursuing Frodo and he starts drowning. 
Frodo finally goes back towards him, pulls him up out of the water, and he's like, why did you do that? Samwise says, because a promise is a promise. I made a promise. I said, don't you leave him, Samwise, and I don't mean to. Cue those violins and those fiddles that they use in Lord of the Rings. They're crying. They embrace one another. Because Samwise will not break a promise. Promise is made. Promise is broken. We've all seen this. We've all experienced this. And in the Christian life, beholding, understanding, and clinging to the promises of God, they're absolutely essential. They're absolutely essential. And for us to know that God is the promise keeper, He never has and never will break any of his promises towards his people. And brothers and sisters, before the first advent of Christ, before the first Christmas, I want us to understand today that the people of God in the Old Testament, they held fast to the promise of the Messiah. They longed to see the day when the true Redeemer of Israel would come and save his people. And this promise was held for over 2,000 years. I mean, imagine us and our impatience. We don't like to wait for two days. Amazon Prime, right? Two weeks, two years. But the Old Testament saints of Scripture, from Abraham through Malachi, all up until the first advent of Jesus, They held fast to the promise that the Messiah would one day come. And I want us to see that there's actually this this great alignment between where we are, the event, the historical miracle of Christmas, and where Abraham began. Because the distance, the time between Abraham and Jesus is 2,000 years. And the time between where we are and the past event of Christmas is 2,000 years. And so although 4,000 years separate us and our father of faith, Abraham, Jesus stands at the center point. And what unites us all as the people of God is faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Isaiah. They all had faith in the future Messiah, the future Redeemer of Israel. And for us here today, 2,000 years after Christmas, we look back. We look back in faith, believing that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. And ultimately, in the end, Jesus will return and make good on all those promises once again. God is calling us to faith. The goal for today's message is this, for us to truly see how beautiful the promise of Advent was for God's people. We're going to go through a lot of Old Testament passages and scriptures. We're going to look at some prophecies. And I want us to to reconnect with what it was like to wait on the Messiah. To have your hope in the coming Messiah. And then for us to see how significant it is to be heirs of that promise today. For us to remember what a privilege it is to be where we are. Because oftentimes we covet the Old Testament saints of Scripture. We covet the characters of the Bible. We're like, man, they could see. They heard. They experienced all of these miracles. But brothers and sisters, they long to know. 
They long to experience what we have in Jesus Christ, in the gospel. And I want us to see how significant it is for us to be heirs of the promise today. If you have your Bibles, please turn to our passage, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. I'll be reading from the ESV, and may God bless the reading of his holy and matchless word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Amen. The word of the Lord. We have uh, three points in our message today. The first is a promise broken. The second is a promise made. And the third is a promise kept. Now, both Matthew and Luke, uh, they have the birth stories of Jesus in their Gospels. Luke's is the most famous. It's the one that uh, everyone uses for their plays. Uh, Most of our Christmas sermons come from Luke's account. It's the longer account. It also focuses on the experience of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, Many New Testament scholars believe that uh, Luke may have connected with Mary. Mary was an eyewitness to Jesus, obviously, as the mother, and she was still alive. And so Luke connected with her and received directly from her the account of the virgin birth. And that's why Luke has all of these details. That's why Luke has such a long story and takes Mary's perspective of, uh, yeah, the virgin birth. However, Matthew, as we read, his account captures the experience of Joseph. Not because Mary's was lesser, not because there's male dominance going on in the writing of Matthew's gospel, but Matthew has an intentional intentional purpose for connecting Jesus' birth to Joseph. It's because he wants to connect Jesus to the line of David. If you read the first 17 verses in Matthew's gospel, it's pure genealogy, right? Father, son, father, son, the next one was born. And, it, and, it, and Matthew charts us from Abraham all the way to G, uh, Jesus, right? That's Matthew's goal. Uh, that's Matthew's goal, and it was Joseph, not Mary, who was from the line of David. Okay? Mary wasn't from the line of David. Mary wasn't a blood relative to King David. It was Joseph, and I'm going to talk more about that later. But for Joseph, the Immaculate Conception, it wasn't just miraculous, okay? It certainly was for Mary. For Joseph, it was scandalous. For Joseph, it was a promise broken. It was confusing. It was embarrassing because while he was betrothed to Mary, and which is an old way of saying engaged, While Joseph was engaged to Mary, she got pregnant and Joseph wasn't the father. He knew he wasn't the father and the scripture tells us and it's implied when it says before they came together. 
Okay? Before they came together, Mary and Joseph, they were not living together. They were not sleeping together. Mo- Joseph didn't need a, a DNA paternity test. He's like, we have not slept together. There's no way I am the father and you are pregnant. It was confusing. It was scandalous. In the midst of betrothal, there was betrayal. You see, in the Jewish culture, betrothal was as good as being married. It was actually the first part of marriage. I think uh, engagement, we don't see it that way. You can be engaged and then be like, hey, you know what, second thoughts, break it off, right? That happens in our culture and we've seen it. It's not a divorce. But in the Jewish culture, betrothal was the first part of marriage. It would last about a year. It would last about a year, and the woman would still live with her family apart from her husband. And then after the betrothal period, then they would come together as husband and wife, live under the same roof, and consummate their marriage. But for all intensive purposes, betrothal was as strong. They were considered married. But the promise was broken. Seemingly. Joseph Joseph must have thought, man, purity... Trust, it's been betrayed. And because of this, when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, he decided to divorce her. Okay? He decided to divorce her. All he needed to do, according to Jewish law, was take two witnesses, serve a divorce certificate, and then it was done. They were divorced. Now the Bible also tells us that Joseph was just. Okay? And that means that he was righteous and compassionate. Joseph was just. And so out of his righteousness and compassion, he didn't want to put Mary to shame, so he resolved to do it quietly. Why is this important? Why is Joseph divorcing her quietly important? Because in Deuteronomy 22, did you know there was a stipulation for adultery amidst betrothal? Old Testament has laws for everything. If you read through it, it's, it's pretty crazy, right? And so Deuteronomy 22, there's a law that states, if a betrothed woman commits adultery, then, sh- then the penalty is death by stoning. Death by stoning. If Joseph made it public, if he took her to the Jewish high court, Mary could have been stoned for her adultery. Joseph didn't want that for her. So he was going to do it quietly. He was a just, compassionate man. I just got to say it. Joseph is a better man than me. He's a better man than me. If, uh, if when I was engaged to my wife, Alice, if she got pregnant from another person, no mercy. Right? I would have gone straight Deuteronomy 22. I would have went to Home Depot, bought the stones myself. Right? I mean, for real. And I'm taking the engagement ring back. If you've ever seen a TV show or a movie where they break off the engagement ring, but the guy just says, oh, keep the ring, I don't want it, it's too painful. That, was written, that plot was written by someone who's never bought an engagement ring. Right? It's just for real. I'm taking the ring back and going full Deuteronomy 22. Joseph was, for all intents and purposes, he thought he was betrayed. What promises in our lives, what covenants in our lives are more sacred than marriage? The person that he loved, the woman that he wanted to start a family and spend the rest of his life with, had gotten pregnant with another man. He was hurt. He was shamed. He was ready to divorce. But verse 20 tells us, But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him 
in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In the midst of what Joseph perceived to be a broken promise, it turned out to be a promise made by God. And this is where Joseph is called to receive the promise of Advent. It is a tremendous call to faith that in the womb of Mary is the Messiah, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph is told that Mary will bear a son, that he is to name him Jesus, which means the Lord saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I, I just want us to have a little bit of compassion towards Joseph. We don't think much of him, but what a just mind trip. One moment you think your wife has cheated on you. The next moment you have a dream, an angel talks to you and says, you know what's in your, it's, it's not adultery. It's actually God, the Holy Spirit, who is conceived in your engaged wife's womb, the Messiah. The Messiah. The hope of Israel, the great redeemer that all God's people have been waiting for, praying for, hoping in from generation to generation, beginning with Abraham all the way to them. That is mind-blowing. That is mind-blowing. It is a tremendous call to faith. It is a tremendous challenge that God laid before Abraham. And on the human level, Joseph is called to accept Mary as his wife. Not divorce her, accept her as his wife. To adopt what may have been a bastard child as his own. Okay? As his own. And then give him his name. And by, giving, by Joseph giving this boy, Jesus, his name, his family name, he is giving him the status of a full descendant of David. Friends, we have this dangerous tendency to think that faith for the characters of the Bible was easy. Don't, don't, don't you sometimes think that? We read the Old Testament, we're like, man, of course they believe. The walls of Jericho fell down because people walked around and blew trumpets. If that happened with us, I would believe for the rest of my days. Right? Of course Joseph believes. An angel came and spoke to him. If an angel came and spoke to me, I would believe. We think that, but I want to say two things. First, let's not flatter ourselves. The Bible is full of people who saw Jesus, heard him, experienced his miracles, and still walked away. Right? Let's not flatter ourselves and think, oh yeah, if I was there, I would for sure believe. Secondly, let's not patronize the people of Scripture. Let's not patronize the people of Scripture. For the men in this room, I've already mentioned it. If our wives got pregnant and it wasn't us, and we were told by our wives, you know what? I didn't cheat. It was the Holy Spirit. Would you believe her? Would you really? She's like, hey, an angel came. It's the Holy Spirit. That what's his name, really? Right? I don't know how many of us would accept that. I already told you my response. Deuteronomy 22. <laughs> but Joseph so important for Joseph to receive and take hold of God's promises. He has a crucial role to play in the advent of Jesus Christ. Remember, it's Joseph, not Mary, who's from the line of David. 
And the scriptures have said that the Messiah must come from this line. That the king of kings, the redeemer of Israel, must come from the line of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made his covenant with King David. It's called the Davidic covenant. And he promised David that he would establish an everlasting throne through his offspring. This is what God promises David in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's the Davidic covenant. That's the promise. And God was not talking about Solomon. God was not talking about any of the fallen earthly kings of Israel. He was talking about the true king, the Messiah, ultimately Jesus Christ. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. All of David's offspring were filled with some form, some expression, some shape of evil. If you read through the Old Testament histories, the part of the, the Bible where we often kind of skip through, if you're in a one-year Bible plan, you're like, oh my gosh, First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, First, Second Chronicles, they get progressively more difficult. Samuel, those are awesome stories, right? It's like Saul, David, all of those things. And then we start struggling through the rest of the kings. Why? Because it seems like such a cycle. King after king rules over Israel. They're more evil, more sinful than the father before them. Every once in a while, a good king comes up, someone like Hezekiah. But the vast majority of them were evil. They were so evil that the kingdom of Israel became divided after Solomon's reign. Okay, so if you're ever reading through the Old Testament and there seems to be a distinction between Israel and Judah and you're like, I thought it was one country. One, I knew there were 12 tribes and whatever it might be. It's because you're now reading the part of the divided kingdom. After King Solomon, his sons were wicked, evil, divisive. And so they, the kingdom split. The northern kingdom was then referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom was referred to as Judah. Okay, and Judah... Uh, the southern kingdom had the capital city of Jerusalem. These kings were so evil. God's people were so wicked that because of their sin in 714 BC, the northern kingdom fell to Assyria. And then in 586 BC, the southern kingdom fell to Babylon. And then God's people were exiled from the promised land. Think about that. After all of that fighting, after the conquest generation, after the fulfillment of God's promises to get his people out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land, they lost it. And they became slaves again to foreign countries. For generations, it seemed as if the throne and glory of David it was done. Lost forever. Lost forever. Daniel Doriani, a Reformed theologian, he writes this. For this reason... Because of the failure of Israel's kings, the weakness of David's bloodline, Matthew reveals that Jesus is from the line of David, but not the flesh of David. Jesus is from the line of David, but not the flesh of David. The history of Israel has been a sad tale of failed king following failed king, and God's people needed something different. God's people needed someone different. And this is why Jesus Christ, as the Messiah, took Joseph's name, 
but was not from Joseph's flesh. Okay. It was not from Joseph's flesh. Friends, this is the strength of the biblical doctrine of adoption. It's really remarkable. You and I are the adopted children of God. You and I are the sons and daughters of God, not by the flesh, not by bloodlines, but by faith, right? And because we are adopted, what God affords to us are the full privileges of sonship. We are the full heirs of God's kingdom. That's adoption. And adoption is true and it's active in Jesus' birth as well. Jesus is from the line of David, fulfilling the Davidic covenant through adoption. Because Joseph adopted him, accepted him as his own son, gave him his own family name. And this is how Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant. How Jesus is the true king of Israel. It's pretty remarkable, friends. Promise kept. Our last point for today. In the final verses of our passage, the angel tells Joseph, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew provides a little commentary, just in case you don't know what it means, which means God with us. God with us. That's Emmanuel. Matthew is quoting Isaiah 7, 14. And if you've ever read the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see a lot of Old Testament references. Scholars say that Matthew's Gospel is the most Jewish Gospel. Luke's Gospel is the most Greek Gospel. Okay? Uh, and so there's, there's subtle distinctions there. But Matthew over again is quoting the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament prophets. And his purpose is this. He wants you to know that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. That Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies, of Jeremiah's prophecies, of Ezekiel's prophecies. That Jesus is right, the hope and redeemer and deliverer that Israel has been waiting for for 2,000 years. That is Matthew's objective. That is his goal, to connect the Old and the New Testament, the Old and the New Covenant, all in Jesus Christ. We're going to do a little bit of Old Testament, so bear with me. You see, here's, here's us. A lot of times we're reading the New Testament or the gospel stories and there's an Old Testament quote. We're like, that's cool, and then we keep going. But I want to give you the context of this messianic prophecy that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel because I found it fascinating. In Isaiah chapter 7, we have the story of a king and his name is Ahaz. And uh, just to let you know, if you're going through the Old Testament kings, if their name starts with A, they're probably bad. Yeah. The, for some reason, the A kings were all like bad kings. Um, anyways. Um, and so King Ahaz, and he was ruling over the southern kingdom. Okay, It's supposed to be the righteous kingdom. That's where Jerusalem and the temple is. But Ahaz was wicked. He was idolatrous. Ahaz even had some of his sons sacrificed in idol worship. And one day, the northern king of Israel allied, he partnered up with the king of Syria, and they waged war against Judah. They waged war against Jerusalem to try and take over their land. God's people in Judah were terrified. They were restless. They were heartbroken. In one battle, uh, 2 Chronicles tells us, 200,000 men and women and children were taken captive. 
at the hands of the northern kingdom and the Syrians. Despite Ahaz's wickedness, right? Despite the odds and the trouble that Judah was facing, God promised Judah will not fall to these two foes. He promised that. And Isaiah the prophet goes to Ahaz and he delivers this word. Judah will not fall to Syria. Judah will not fall to the northern kingdom. But, he warns him, if you will not be firm in faith, you will not stand or you will not be firm at all. Okay? If you are not firm in faith, if you are not anchored to God in faith, you will not be firm at all. And so Ahaz, he was not godly. He was not a believer. He was an idolater. But God wanted Ahaz to place his trust in him. He wanted Ahaz to recognize the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To worship him. And so this is what God did. He offered Ahaz a sign. He told Isaiah, he's like, tell Ahaz whatever sign he needs, whatever proof he needs to put his faith and trust in me, I will give it. God literally said, let it be as deep as Shoal or as high as heaven. Whatever he needs, I will offer it. Imagine that. Okay? What would you ask for if God made that offer to you? I want you to trust in me. I want you to worship me and believe in me. Whatever you need, Whatever sign you need, I will provide it. What would you ask for, right? What would you ask for? But Ahaz responds. He says in Isaiah 7, he says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. And when I read that, I was like, man, Ahaz, that sounds pretty godly, right? That sounds pretty righteous. And we, you know, we shouldn't put the Lord to the test and all of that stuff. And so it sounds biblical. But if you read the parallel accounts in 2 Chronicles 28 and uh, 2 Kings 16, I believe, um, you'll see why Ahaz said that. And Ahaz said, I, will, I don't need a sign. I don't want a sign from God because he had already made a deal with another king. He made a deal with the Assyrian king to help him fight the Syrians, to help him fight the northern kingdom. What Ahaz did was he raided the temple of God, took its valuables, and then offered them as tribute to the Assyrians. And Assyrians took it. And what happened next was the Assyrians defeated Judah's enemies. They fought off the Syrians. They fought off the northern kingdom. And as a result, Ahaz worshipped the Assyrian gods. He says, Assyria delivered us. The Assyrian gods were mighty and showed favor to us. He went as far as to take the places of worship for Yahweh, break them down, and then build up Assyrian altars of worship to their false gods. This is the kind of wicked, idolater King Ahaz was. Ahaz thought he made an ally with Assyria. But you know what happened after that? The Assyrians troubled Judah. They became a plague to Judah. Ahaz is almost killed at the hands of the Assyrians. And it's in this context, it's really surprising. It's in this context, all of this is going on when God comes to his people and promises the Messiah. It's with all of this going on with Ahaz and the wars and the idolatry, God says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isn't that surprising? If you imagined before we broke that down, 
what Isaiah, the context was, you would have thought, oh, it's like just worship, people trusting God, longing for God, and God saying, yes, of course, I'm going to give you a deliverer, and it's going to come from the womb of a virgin, and you're going to call his name Emmanuel. But it's profound. It's profound for us to stop and realize that in the midst of Israel's great sin, in the midst of them having a king from the flesh of David reject the God of David, that in the midst of of Ahaz trying to take matters into his own hands and worshiping the idols of false gods, in that context and climate, God offered himself to his people. God offered himself to Ahaz. And in a way, just as Ahaz was taking matters into his own hands, God took matters into his own hands. You guys see that? God says, I'll give you a sign. Ahaz says, no. God says, whether you like it or not, I'm going to give my people a sign. That's why verse 14 says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. That's what God provided. You see, God knew that only he could be the deliverer for his people. It wouldn't be the Assyrians. He knew only he could be the savior. Only he could be the redeemer of his people, even when his people, Israel, didn't know it. And he made them a promise that a virgin shall conceive a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And hundreds of years later, in the fullness of time, God kept his promise in full. I want you to stop and think about that. God knows you. He loves you. And he provides for you better than you can care for yourself. This is what we see in the story of Ahaz in Israel. This is good news for us. To know that the promise of God, it's not for the righteous. It's for the unrighteous. To know that God keeps his promises. That God makes us promises even when we don't keep ours. Even when we are wandering even when we are wayward. And to hear that the offer of God's presence, when God says, I will be with you, I will be your God and you will be my people, that the basis of that is not our performance, but it's his. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. God's presence isn't for the worthy. It's for the unworthy. And what we also see is that Jesus comes to deal with our sin. He comes to deliver us not from a military enemy. He comes to deliver us not from uncomfortable, mere situations. He comes to deliver us from our greatest enemy, our greatest foe, which is sin. You see this name, this title, deliverer, it's not one and only reserved for Jesus. Moses was a deliverer for his people. He led his people out of slavery, out of Egypt, out of bondage. He was considered one of the greatest deliverers for Israel. King David is considered a deliverer. When they're about to fall to Goliath and the Philistines, what does David do? He puts a rock right into the forehead of Goliath and he delivers his people. The judges over and over again, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, they are called deliverers for Israel. But there's a distinction about Jesus. Only Jesus is able to deliver us from sin. Only Jesus is able to save you, to free you, to preserve you from the destructive effects of sin. 
This is what Jesus Christ has come to do. He is able to deal with your sin. And this makes Christianity so unique. You know, all of the world religions, you can study Buddhism, you can study Islam, right? They all acknowledge that there's something wrong with the world. And they all acknowledge that there's something wrong with us, okay? They all acknowledge that there is evil and that we have problems. The one distinction about Christianity is this. God himself condescends to us to fix the problems that we have, to cure the evil, to heal the sin. Everyone else says, you do this. You give this. You read this. You say this. It's all about in the world religion's climate. It's like, yeah, there are problems. There are evils. You have problems. You have sins, trouble. So you need to do this to fix and heal yourself. But for Christianity, God himself is the solution. God came down, took on flesh, and walked among us. Jesus himself is able to deal with our sins. He's able to do something about your sin through his life, death, and resurrection. And just as Isaiah warned King Ahaz, he, I want to exhort you today, if you hear this promise that the Messiah has come, if you hear this promise that God is Emmanuel, he is with you, stand firm in faith. Because if you do not stand firm in faith, you will not stand at all. Faith is the one way. It is the only instrument that we have to access the power, the grace, the blessing of Jesus Christ as our deliverer. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We can't work for it. All we can do and all that we are called to do is exercise full faith, trust, and dependence on God, on Jesus, on his person and work. God is with us. God is Emmanuel. Church, did you know that Matthew's gospel begins and ends with the promise of Emmanuel? It's a beautiful truth. At the birth of Jesus, we are reminded that God is with us and that Jesus will save us from our sins. Right? At the midpoint of Matthew's gospel, it's uh, right around Matthew chapter 18. Do you know what Jesus says? It's the chapter of church discipline. And Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, there I am with you. Jesus promises again his presence to his church. Why is that important? Because through the presence of Jesus, through the person of Jesus, we can be made holy. Okay? Through the first advent of Jesus in Christmas, we can be saved from our sin. There can be hope. There is light in the world. Through Matthew 18 and the promise of Jesus in church discipline, Jesus says, I will make you holy and at the end of Matthew's gospel, in chapter 28, we have the great commission, right? This great call to mission, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And at the end of the great commission, what does Jesus say? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What does that tell us? That God is with you. His power is with you to accomplish his purposes, 
that Jesus hasn't just died for us, left and said, now live for me and do all these good things for me. No. His power, his authority is with us so that we can live for his glory, that we can make disciples, that we can be instruments of healing, messengers of truth, bearers of of light in this dark world. We don't do it alone. We don't even just do it together. We do it with Jesus by his presence and grace in the Holy Spirit. That's how important the presence of God is. You understand that? He's moving towards us. That's the story of Christmas, that we couldn't save ourselves, that this world can't heal itself, and God knows that, and so he moved towards us in grace and in power. I hope that this Advent season, I hope that this Christmas, you would want to know who this God is. I hope that as you think about this phrase, Emmanuel, God with us, I pray that over the next four weeks as we journey together, I hope and pray that it would be more than a tagline, more than lyrics to a song, more than, oh, I already know that Emmanuel means God with us. I hope that you would experience the presence of God in your life and the difference that that makes, the joy that that brings, the hope that it provides, the power that comes with the presence of Jesus. And if you don't know it, would you seek it? Would you seek it this Christmas? Would you go back to God and say, Lord, I want to know you and your death and resurrection? Would you in sincerity of heart and faith say, God, I want to experience you. I feel so distant. Christianity and church has become such a routine Lord, I want to know what it means to live life in your presence again. Would you consider that? Would you long for that? And would you have faith that God fully provides that for you through the work of Christ and his Holy Spirit? The good news of Jesus Christ begins and ends with the presence of God with us in Christ. Let's enjoy it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so jealous for us. Who are we that you would pursue us from heaven to earth so that we might not remain enslaved to sin and lost in darkness, but that we would receive your promises that we will be transformed by your grace and then be able to live in freedom and power and in joy. God, we thank you. We confess that in so many ways we have tried to find alternatives to discipleship. We've tried to fix our lives. We've tried to fix our circumstances and our troubles, just as Ahaz tried to get himself out of a difficult situation by bartering and selling out to an Assyrian king. We see that as foolish, and yet at the same time, we bow down to the idol of money. We bow down to the idol of approval. 
We think that if we perform, we think that if we succeed, then we will be significant and secure. We think that if we buy the right things, if we get enough likes, clicks, and comments, that we will consider ourselves blessed and whole. Father, have mercy on us for seeking so many alternatives to you, your promise, your truth, your goodness in our lives. Lord, help us to hear you, to hear the true promises you have afforded to us in Jesus. And help us to to hold fast to those, knowing that you alone are the resurrection and the life, that you alone are our hope of glory. We trust you. We long 